welcome back to this episode of Beyond the Ballot. With me today is Amelia Womack. She's a British politician and journalist and formerly the deputy leader of the Green Party of England and Wales. Um, beside her very cool career, Amelia is also a friend, which makes it a pleasure for many reasons to have her with me on this episode, which is the relaunching of Beyond the Ballot. So the floor is yours for a proper introduction. Oh, thank you so much. And it is such a pleasure to be doing this podcast with you. So I was deputy leader of the Green Party from 2014 to 2022. Spanning that eight years, we worked on three general elections, which was more for the UK than we should have had in that time. And he referendum politics has really changed since then. But what I've really seen is a, a narrowing down of ideas that, uh, especially during the cost of living crisis, that we're really focusing on the small changes that, that people see need to be made uh, to make lives better. But it's not acknowledging the fact that we're having these interconnected issues that we're all facing in whatever country we're in around the world. While working to solve one thing like the climate crisis, if we do that in isolation without tackling inequality, then actually we are we are probably going to fail in a lot of that ambition that we have. So over those years, I've worked on different campaigns from working to make misogyny a hate crime to uh, even bringing reintroducing beavers back into the UK uh, to increase our biodiversity, support habitats and even reduce flood risk as a result of the way that they work with our landscapes. So I've had quite a varied uh, experience of how you change politics. And time and time again, I just come back to the fact that we can't just make small incremental changes right now. Something big needs to change because the system's so broken. It's going to take something, uh, these big policy ideas, these big ideas that work for everybody, as well as the planet and the climate, to ensure that we're able to tackle the problems the world's facing. That's the title of this episode, which is The Power of Big Ideas. Um, and it's funny that despite the varying degrees to which the world faces these similar problems, democracy may be less so than other systems, one would say. But even so, these varying degrees of the same problems, um, the titles to their solutions are quite clear. So let's start by defining those problems and maybe have a bit of a laugh about how we live continents apart and despite that still have so many problems in common, but only to varying degrees. So the big ideas, the way you define them to get us out of this mess, they included a universal basic income, a Green New Deal, a genuine living wage, a law of ecocide, public ownership of services, keeping fossil fuels in the ground, abolishing the House of Lords, ending gender-based violence and proportional representation. Which ones of these do you find to be more urgent to tackle? Well, so many things go hand in hand. So being from the UK, where we've got a first-past-the-post voting system, I feel that many of our problems fall on the fact that our democracy is so outdated. If you look at the, the rest of Europe, we've got one of the most disproportional, or well, yeah, the, the most disproportional uh, voting system, which um, I could say uh, that uh, there is one more that is less proportional, but that's the Vatican on how they elect their Pope. So it's um, it just shows how antiquated the system really is. 
And what we've seen is that I think that we've got a weaker kind of politics because uh, rather than having one person, one vote, there are a few areas that we call constituencies that an MP is elected for that have more power than others because governments are decided by just a few of those constituencies changing hands. It means that diverse voices aren't represented. Obviously, I'm going to say voices like the Green Party because we've been... You know, we, it's been decades since we knew about the climate and ecological emergencies and the best place to put those policies in place was 30 years ago. Uh, those countries that have had Greens elected as a result of proportional systems have put stronger policies in place. I'm not saying they're perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but have stronger environmental policies in place and also work on a more collaborative way of working. Whereas uh, in the UK, I feel like where our politics is really based around conflict. And so things like that, just small, that's, I mean, it's a big idea, it would be a radical change in the UK. And it could make a stronger politics that could put in place a lot of those other ideas. But not one of them goes in isolation, they have to work hand in hand with each other. Because as I said, you can't just changing one thing, isn't going to change the world. We have to be making sure we're thinking about all of the diversity of our problems and how they interconnect together. Uh, when you say that there was an ecological crisis 30 years ago, are we talking about COP starting 27 years ago? Well, we've known so much about uh, the the uh, cl so much about climate change. It was um, back. I believe, well, I mean, the first records of concerns about climate change, I believe, were even further back than our modern understanding. I think there's first references in it. Um, and don't quote me on this, but kind of the 1920s, quite early um, after the Industrial Revolution about how pollution was impacting our atmosphere. We saw reports coming out uh, about how, well, a range of issues happening uh, just 30 years ago where it was issues. So we talked about ecosystems, obviously, we know about uh, extinction rates as a result of human activity. Those were beginning decades ago. We know about the role of pollution on especially, um, you know, back 30 years ago, back really that kind of pollution, uh, maritime pollution as a result of uh, so many oil. Um, there were uh, so many um, oil catastrophes that happened uh, in our oceans and yet we're still doing those things now the hole in the ozone layer uh, was was discovered years before that and still not right. no action was taken and yeah climate change is just one part of that but we have known about climate change since the 1970s and yet uh, the action has been slow and nobody's taken the urgency that has been clear since the beginning in the policies that they've put in place or been able to find an effective way to work internationally on how we tackle our emissions and keep our emissions to safe levels. Right, but with the commission of COP to this now, we can see that um, there's this play on terminologies that is happening now, right? So phasing down versus phasing out the different commitments of different countries, the US pulling out of the Paris Agreement. So there seemed to be this urgency to tackle this immediately. And now countries are evading their responsibility towards this. And you find them still going to COP every year, mostly to discuss this matter, but the urgency in taking immediate steps towards it has just been delayed year after year, even to an extent where at the moment you find the main topic of discussion to be loss and damage, which is very important, of course, especially to the countries paying the price of climate change, especially in the global south. But even so, 
the responsibility of net zero emissions, of phasing down our emissions, of keeping fossil fuels in the ground, and in taking immediate action towards this emergency, you find it to be fading away a bit year after year. Uh, absolutely. And I think that the authority of COP gets diminished when obviously a lot of the stories coming out of this COP uh, were about the amount of uh, oil representatives that were there. There were oil deals done at COP and those were press released. I actually wrote an article about the number of oil deals that were done during that period and specifically at COP itself. Uh, I've only found those, I found those out because they were press released. It wasn't some big secret. Um, at COP. So it was not enough that the leaders of the world were arriving on their private chats. Also, oil deals were taking place. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oil and gas, actually. Sorry, oil, oil and gas deals. Um, there's been such a dash for gas as a result of the, the energy crisis in Europe uh, that has meant that new oil uh, gas pipelines are being opened up in Africa and deals being made. So it's... Uh, uh, a really interesting time for us to be discussing climate when we are I know, here in the UK, energy prices are increasing beyond anybody, <laughs> beyond the majority of people's means. Um, the people have been really struggling to keep food on their table and to keep their homes warm with the current wages they have. But, but a dash for gas isn't the solution what would be a better solution is things like home insulation and uh, you know that genuine green new deal that I talked about those um, policies that mean that we're putting the environmental options as a priority rather than just always falling back on fossil fuels as a default but and um, their reliance yeah. on Russian oil has also mm. showed a fundamental flaw in a system that relies on it so much that people are now unable to afford heating their homes anymore yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that that's something that has been really downplayed, especially in the UK, is that the oil price here was has always been based on uh, what's happening internationally. It's based on geopolitics. And if it wasn't going to be a problem with Russia, there are many other countries, you know, including Egypt, where we were for COP27, including the UAE, where we'll be for COP28. These countries are the uh the the places that are supplying the world with our uh, fossil fuels and have you know i I'd, I'd say that they um their priorities probably don't match those that the climate emergency demands and of course talking about egypt and cop we can't talk about the intersectionality between climate justice and human rights without talking about egypt hosting cop and what was happening right in Iran, right nearby, and the fact that it was not even mentioned in COP. Like the police was opening fire on peaceful protesters, and that did, did not seem to be a subject that was tackled or discussed anywhere during COP. In one of the conferences that bring together world leaders, this topic was not mentioned once, or even the human rights violations that happen in Egypt. Absolutely. And I think uh, the one of the parts of the pride history of uh, the civic civil society at COP has been the role of peaceful protest and how communities use their voices to speak out about what's happening uh, to different groups that often don't have a voice, uh, especially in a, a oppressive societies, Egypt itself being one of them. Some protesters that arrived uh, were arrested um, before the COP started. I, one person from 
India held a sign in Cai up in Cairo about the climate and uh, they were arrested. So we had uh, something out of protest. Arrested Egypt. for holding a sign about the climate? Yes, yeah, yeah. And then, so it was so, not uh, attacking any regime. It was not criticizing anyone in particular. It was regarding the climate. So because the, I can't remember the translation. So I saw a photo and it is just holding up a piece of paper in in Cairo, um, but it's in Hindi. Was it in English or was it in Hindi? No, it must have been in English. Uh, but yeah, he, he uh, so he got arrested. His lawyer went to the, um, where he was being held and the lawyer was also arrested. So in terms of democratic freedom, the, the story just, you know, it, it just um, shows just how oppressive Egypt is and, and can be. Um, but and in terms of women's rights as well, I feel that it's unsurprising that those people protesting for um, specifically on women's rights was ignored because I feel like it's a an aspect of COP itself on of our climate policies that there isn't always a recognition of how women are oppressed around the world and especially about what that means in uh, uh, countries like Iran. These things are all connected and and the role of women's oppression uh, has a, a fundamental part in how we are uh, we should be understanding climate change itself as well. And I think um, the the fact that it wasn't discussed and highlighted, as you said, all of the world leaders there just shows uh, a complete blind spot to how our world leaders operate. And a failure in the purpose of a conference that was supposed to tackle an emergency and the way that it seems like it has turned into borrowing more time over and over. It's networking, such, turning great. this into, event, uh, into an event where people are mostly there to network, to discuss this apparent emergency without tackling it with immediate solutions. And ultimately, it's just turning into this big event that happens every year. But to think of it as this year was COP27, which means it's been 27 years of a climate emergency since the moment world leaders got together and said there is an emergency that we need to handle immediately and it's been 27 years of that and then it happens yes i guess it must be 27 conferences but 28 years since because of the covid pandemic right uh, <laughs> right. So there's even more time you know there's 27 conferences but uh, the the timing is uh, even even longer and i feel that if anything should have taught world leaders about not being prepared for international problems and the importance of collaborating and working together to reduce risk, then uh, seeing the impacts of the COVID pandemic should have been something that made the climate emergency and biodiversity loss, you know, if we lose our... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Is she in the room or is she outside wants to get in? She is, but she tends to bark whenever anyone passes in front of the door outside. That's just oh. her um, doing her job in protecting the house. <laughs> oh, very cute. She's so adorable. I just like my Let's heart see if she jumps into the frame in a while. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Cross for that. Um, that's fine. I just can't remember what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> There was something at the top of my mind by discussing uh, Egypt hosting COP, 
and it's hard to forget this at some point. Well, we know that Egypt bought these um, electric buses for people who want to commute through Sharm el-Sheikh. And at some point I was riding one of them and someone had written a message in Arabic on the seat in front of me. And knowing the history of human rights violations, I think I understood why the message was written in Arabic on those seats at a conference where people are expected to be arriving to Sharm el-Sheikh from all over the world. And the message, I can't remember it very exactly what it said, but uh, but it was something along the lines of the people are hungry and the president is mad. And it was much longer than that, but it tells you a lot about the fear that people felt not being able to express that they're actually hungry, that they're going through a crisis. If people cannot even protest. So they were looking for secret ways to be able to write those messages to deliver them to people. So when we look at conferences like these and the way that they can serve a much better purpose when they bring activists and world leaders and important stakeholders, when they get together in a place like this, you would assume that not only climate change, but also the way that it intersects with so many different problems. And just to be getting back to the, to the subject of a while ago, the intersectionality between climate justice and human rights. It feels like these conferences can serve a better purpose than this in raising awareness, at least, about dominant problems, crises that the whole world is facing. And yet it doesn't seem to be a priority. So right now, this discussion that is happening between us, why does it matter? I mean, we look at leaders from all over the world and there is so little about human rights and all the other subjects that we started the discussion with that are on the table. The world has a lot to be concerned about at the moment. And, you know, Ukraine and Russia rightfully have the attention at the moment. Iran less so, but still Turkey and Syria due to, due to the earthquake. Yet the headlines will rarely ever mention these subjects. So why do they matter? And why do they matter now? I think, I mean, to begin with, that message on the bus is such a brave act. And uh, it's something I think that so often people take for granted the democracy that they do have. I mean, I've already criticised democracy in the UK, but I know that I'm completely in my rights to speak out against my government and, you know, regularly do. And that's why these conversations are important, because, you know, this um, I think it's such a uh, beyond the ballot is such a, an important phrase because politics just isn't about voting every few years for who you want as your leader. It's about using every form of democracy to make sure that your voice is heard. You know, those elected representatives work for you. And by speaking out and building knowledge and learning about ideas that can make change, you can become a vehicle to making that change possible. And so these conversations are essential and shouldn't just be happening on podcasts, should be happening, you know, at pubs and restaurants and um, with family and colleagues, because that's how you change society. Revolutions weren't built in a day. They were as a re result of, yes, a lot of dissatisfaction that meant that the big ideas weren't just, didn't seem radical. They seemed essential to people's lives. Yes, and the influence that people can have on politics is very underrated. You know, we all grew up to the idea that politics were reserved to a certain elite who understood politics. But I think over time we started realizing more the influence that we can have on politics and on policies, on the improvement of our quality of lives, on the intersectionality between politics 
and immediately the social services that we can have access to. And so quality of life and the immediate connection between that and politics is something that needs to have more attention. Like children need to understand that the quality of lives that they can have is immediately related to at some point the vote that they can cast, but then also the campaigning that they can have around them, being able to think critically about the problems around them and how they can be active change makers in their societies. And there isn't nearly as much attention given to that. Well, not as much as it should anyway. Absolutely. And you said about young people not being taught, I think, um, and I, I, I feel like this is true of other countries around the world, when people are using those democratic rights, uh, I'm more thinking of uh, protest rather than the uh, other avenues that you highlighted, but I feel like they're kind of demonized by the press, like people are doing something wrong by trying to get their voices heard, where really it should be celebrated when people are taking action. Here in the UK, strike action has been you know, taking place in nearly every sector from teachers, nurses, uh, refuse workers, uh, driving um driving teachers like i just the the list is endless because people are so dissatisfied with what's happening and uh first of all the press tried to demonize those people for taking strike action a, a basic right to ensure that they are able to change something which it was interesting because it then didn't wash anymore i think as soon as the nurses went out you can't people weren't going to tolerate the nurses being demonized. But all of these ways that we should be celebrating the wins that we've had historically in every country, whether that's women's rights to vote, whether that is uh, even things like having uh, for, for countries where there is a, a basic wage, uh, where we've managed to eliminate, well, not eliminate, definitely not eliminate, but, you know, uh, eliminate the kind of, slave labor that was predominant across uh, our countries and slavery itself that um we are making those celebrating those changes because they were people that managed to change that uh, at the end of the day those changes were just words on a piece of paper but it was because of people's voices people speaking out that those words got written down and those actions had to be taken uh, by those in charge right and we can also see the way that at the moment lgbtq uh, protests are sometimes bashed and oppressed depending on the countries in which they're happening. And these are also supposed to convey a very important voice, which is that of an oppressed minority and the need of policy to adjust to their rights. And we find that happening in some places a lot more than others. While, and again, the example that I would give will always be based on my context, we find policy to be going in retrograde in Lebanon, for example where the LGBTQ community had more rights before than now. So now a circular has been um, passed in Lebanon where no gathering promoting any LGBTQ agenda can take place without prior approval from the Ministry of Interior. Wow. And this has only been the case for the last year. While on the other hand, we can also find them um, facing challenges in, in European countries as well, such as Hungary, Poland, first two countries at the top of my mind mm -hmm. but right so I mean the movement is facing its challenges everywhere and this only goes to show the importance of 
of collective action, of advocacy. The more people you will have supporting them at first, the media will always bash what seems to be a minority action for the mm -hmm. most part, right? Because it's not always easy to break the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's the same for women's rights as well. That's been, uh, women's rights have been rolled back in so many countries on issues like reproductive rights. And, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, kind of looking at, at places like Afghanistan and uh, countries where women aren't allowed to drive anymore. Um, yeah, that's a whole podcast in itself. But what I think I've learned in the years that I've worked in politics is rights that you've won aren't won forever. And right. that oppression is, you just don't know how far, how close to a reality uh, kind of bigotry and oppression is. Um, I really saw it in the UK during the EU referendum that it became, um, it enabled people to talk in a racist way and make it seem like it was acceptable. And people talking, you know, even people talking in, in, in a misogynistic way. Um, and I had so many reasons why people were voting to, to leave the EU and so many of them were, some of them were legit, legitimate in, in the fact that what people, were doing was fighting against something that they felt that you know the world the UK hasn't been people who feel, felt failed by politics they were just you know pointing at the wrong political system uh, at what they were being failed by uh, it reminded me a bit of there's this thing in the UK where because of the different countries we have in the United Kingdom uh, our, our tennis player Andy Murray will be called when he's uh, winning Wimbledon will be called British but when he's losing is called Scottish and I think that that happens in a in policy like in the UK if there's a good policy we'll call it British even if it came from the EU and if it was a, a bad policy we'd call it say it was from the EU even if it was <laughs> from Westminster um, and I think that the uh, that that argument just showed me how close to the surface these ideas are, are that are it could roll back people's rights. Um, I'm not saying that leaving the EU did that in itself, but the opinions that were being, uh, you know, easily uh, communicated here with very little scrutiny were was exactly that happening. And I think, yeah, when we win, we haven't won forever. You have to keep up the fight. So on the intersectionality between all of these issues, the way they fall together, the, the, I mean, the Green New Deal basically addresses... Um, climate change along with social issues. But there were also some very specific issues that you wanted to discuss, such as uh, abolishing the House of Lords. So in what way do you see the intersectionality between all of these issues within a Green New Deal? And what other issues do you find of importance to tackle immediately for a more just transition? So the uh, I, I'm often asked what my favourite policy is, and I'll always say a Green New Deal because it does encompass so many different things of addressing inequality while also reducing our carbon emissions and, uh, you know, ensuring that we are understanding the interconnectivity between those things. And at the moment, you know, you look at across the UK, we know that during a time of uh, depression in America, it was the New Deal that worked to to quite literally build the country out of of that depression and in somewhere like the UK where we're on the cusp of a recession and we have been for, for quite a long time now, um, something like a Green New Deal can be a really positive way to ensure that we're investing not just in this generation, but also in generations to come. People often talk to me about the costs of those things, but you, um, 
I look at other political parties talking about building new hospitals. Yes, yet another important thing that needs to happen for the welfare of people here. But the upfront costs are then counteracted by the long-term benefits. And what I'd really like to see is that conversation on the environmental aspect. In fact, there was a, a member of the House of Lords, and I will get to the House of Lords properly in a minute, but uh, Lord Stern set up a report that uh, called the Stern Review that said that economically it would be better to address climate change now than leave it to the future because it will actually cost more to address it then. And I, I, that's what we we talked about COP, you know, that really is what loss and damage is. It's we, we've resigned ourselves to the fact that the climate emergency is happening and now we are going to uh, support through financial means countries that are harmed by the climate emergency when we should have just been using that money 20, 30 years ago to mitigate against uh, the, the effects of it. So I think the Stern Review came out in 2007, so certainly something that should have been acted on then rather than forgotten about. And so the, you know, these big ideas, universal basic income, uh, abolishing the House of Lords, it's about how you strengthen democracy that, so people feel engaged in society. In the UK, our House of Lords is unelected and often filled with the leaving prime ministers, uh, friends, donors. The there's no democracy in how that works and operates. And so it really fails people and our democratic systems when we we don't acknowledge the fact that our democracy isn't representing people. You know, if people were better represented, they would be looking for ways to support their uh, to support their lives, support their communities, and simple things like a a, a universal basic income in itself is uh, such a, a simple idea that we can be extrapolating for uh, for all communities. So we have a pension and. In the UK, we have um, every every child, the parent of every, every child is given a, uh, a, a an allowance for that child. But in between, we don't recognise the fact that people do need support on the day to day. And it's actually better for our economy if people aren't like, again, this actually ties into kind of mental health aspects of, of how we stop the mental health crisis that we have around the world as well. When people are financially supported, uh, they will work better in society and actually you know they will spend that money so it's better for the economy not that uh um promoting growth is a a way of uh you know changing everything but and and this reminds me of something um i I recently heard it it was um someone was saying all politics are mental health politics because whatever improvement of policy you're working on, if it contributes towards improvement of quality of life, then automatically it is improvement of mental health. Mm, interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the, what the mental health crisis stops people being able to do, it's just, um, it, it's just been so, so unprioritized and addressed around the world. But yeah, these can interconnected issues. I think um, if we ju were just looking at the Green New Deal on its own, that could make quite a radical change. But if we're not, when we're talking about social justice, having a strong democracy, ensuring that people are looked after and supported, there are many different ways that we can create something better. It isn't just going to be one policy alone. And uh, I often think about architecture. So in if you're going to build a building, sometimes an architect needs to knock the whole thing down and start again and if you look at the world or your country or even your local community and how it works now 
if you were just going to knock the whole like system down and start from scratch, we wouldn't build what we had now. We would build something that enabled communities to thrive or uh, countries to to address these 21st century issues that, yeah, our politics has been gradually built over the years on top of each other and it just doesn't understand the challenges of the 21st century right. whether that's climate change or even things like digital rights um you know what what would we build in its place and i think that uh you know maybe less radical than knocking the whole system down is what system would we build in the in its place that makes the old system redundant but um i think that starting from scratch and not being complacent on the fact that uh, we're, we're living at a time of political failure, not necessarily through the fault of those operating in those systems, often as a result of the faults that we are institutionalized into something that's not working. Right, and it is a whole system that we need to rethink, but at least we have a draft of something that we can build on. Any concluding thoughts? Yes, just, uh, I just just wanted to reiterate the section of remembering your own power and if any message if anything from this podcast has resonated i hope it's that engaging in politics isn't just about voting it's about taking action in other ways so right. if you're frustrated with how, with how things are operating just don't forget never forget your own power uh your own power is the way that change will happen that you can inspire others to take action and that we can actually uh you know change change how things work and operate Thank you, Amelia. It's been such a pleasure to have you with me here and to see you again. It's been amazing. Thank you so much.